I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. This is second part of our interview with Joe Mandizi. In a business marketplace, there are companies that do research either internally or externally that help advise those companies on how to do their business. In advertising media marketing, there's a lot of research. There's research about who the audiences are, uh, where they spend their time, what media they consume, what types of content resonate with them, what creative messages work, what don't. Uh, Editor-in-chief at MediaPost.com. Um, Joe, we we talked a lot about a number of different subjects in the first half of the interview. What I'd love to talk about here is thinking about the consequences for people who are leading an organization and and the way that they are making their media or advertising decisions, whether it's brand safety, you know, what's, what is next to where my uh, ad just got placed or uh, the fractured spending of, of the potential mistake of, of putting money in the wrong area of everybody knows everyone's on Facebook, so that's all I should do, or who knows what it, the advice is. But can you talk about some of the consequences to people who are running and trying to grow a brand? Well, absolutely. I mean, look, I really feel for big brand marketers today because, as I said in the last interview, it's theirs to lose. You know, they spent decades or 100 years building brand equity, and tomorrow a new player can come along and use technology in a way that's smarter and disrupt them. And we've seen that with Dollar Shave Club um, eating into Gillette's market share, but then Gillette does the logical thing and turns around and acquires them. Uh, so to some extent, that's not new. Um, big businesses and marketers have always acquired startups that innovate the marketplace. What's different now is it can happen much faster. And, uh, you know, the question is, do they have enough financial equity to stay pace with that model? Um, you know, I think it's a real challenge. There's so many bets they need to make. Um, and we talked about the speed of change earlier, but you know, there's a lot of risk associated with it, but there's also opportunity costs. Um, so one of the things I've done a lot in the last decade, especially the last five years, is spent a lot of time covering startups. And it's not something I did earlier in my career, even though a lot of the media industries I covered always had startups in them, satellite companies or cable companies or new publishers. There wasn't that kind of impact from a startup in those industries because it took a long time for them to scale their business models. Today, a startup can be created tomorrow that will completely supplant or disrupt an entire marketplace tomorrow. And that's very challenging for businesses. So we spend a lot of time covering startups. 
So the first time I really thought about this was when I started getting calls from venture capitalists, which was unusual for an editor of a trade magazine that was mainly about advertising and media. I was trying to figure out why they were calling me. You know, we would talk to private equity or, you know, publicly traded companies, but why were venture capitalists talking to us? And what I realized is that they were representing a portfolio of companies that had created something amazing that was going to disrupt society but they were flawed in their business models. They all came out thinking, well, we'll create this amazing app and consumers will pay for it. And they realized immediately that consumers wouldn't pay for it or they would pay for very few of these things. So they would keep pivoting and pivoting their business models until they figured out, well, we have a lot of users using it, so we'll just sell advertising in it. So we, we have a new advertising medium. Well, that only goes so far. But it's, it's why I started thinking about technology and startups as a disruptive force for advertising media marketing. It was about that time that I realized um, brands were also starting to talk to the startups because they wanted to get a competitive advantage uh, before the, their rivals got wind of this new thing and, and try and get out in front of it. So they've created either they've created their own internal groups to you know field and scout startups that could disrupt markets or they use consultants or advisors to help them find it. But it's become a whole source of, you know, it's, its own practice really within a marketing organization. And they still have to do their day in and day out business of blocking and tackling of product innovation and packaging and servicing and distribution and marketing and sales and customer support. So it's, it's complicated their world a lot. In Madison Avenue, they often use these phrases like 80-20-10 or 80, you know, I'm sorry, 80-15-5. And what it is is, you know, you're going to put 80% of your budget into the traditional media marketing. You're going to put, you know, 15% uh, of it into a little more innovative area. And you're going to put 5% in just risky, crazy new startup ideas. And that seems to be the rule of thumb that big companies use. Um, the problem is they don't know what the opportunity cost of the things they don't see is until those things develop and bite them in the butt. So separate from Media Post, over the past few years, I've been developing my own venture, which I'm not going to pitch in this podcast, but it was something designed to help innovate and disrupt the advertising media marketplace in some way. What it did is it gave me the opportunity to meet firsthand with advertisers and agencies and start pitching them basically on on that concept. And it was really interesting for me as a journalist, having covered these companies for 30, 40 years to now actually be there in their waiting room at five o'clock on a Friday, trying to get their attention and sitting across from them and realizing they do this all day long. They listen to all these pitches and startups and how do they decide which one gets the second base and gets passed on. And it's a fascinating process. I will say it is, it is really challenging for them to know which bets to make and, and take them to that next stage. And um, I don't really have any practical suggestions. I would just say use your gut, trust you know, your advisors. And um, you know, there is a company I've, I cover, it's kind of under wraps now, but they have a slightly different model for going at this. And this is a really dystopian way of thinking about innovation, but they've reached the conclusion that if you don't innovate, you're actually gonna die. And they call it an extinction model, right? And it's really interesting because um, what they really want to do is teach big companies survival skills so that they don't die and go extinct. 
and they're using very Darwinistic principles to, to look at this. Um, and the truth is, just like in nature, where there's background extinctions going on all the time, species are dying off and, you know, not surviving, but new species come along and replace them. There's also something that happens every so many cycles called mass extinctions. And there's a great book. I recommend all your listeners get it. It's, it's called The Sixth Extinction. And I think it's a really appropriate metaphor for media marketing and, and technology innovation. The Sixth Extinction was written by the New Yorker writer Elizabeth Colbert. It's a bestseller. It's a great book. And the premise of it is there have been five great extinctions that we know about. We all know about the dinosaurs and the comets and all that. But the sixth extinction is the one we're going through right now. And she makes a pretty good case for it. But unlike any extinction that's happened to planet Earth before, the species that's most directly involved for this extinction process is actually aware of it. It's human beings, right? So she makes the case for how all of these things we do through largely technology and human endeavor are impacting other species, like the amphibian population, which is going through a mass extinction right now, and others. Um, so the reason I think that's an appropriate metaphor for marketing and media technology innovation is because we're kind of going through our own ex mass extinction right now in the impact that's having on our industry. Um, because the creation of all these new ways of doing things are actually creating background extinctions and maybe a mass extinction for a lot of traditional media and marketing and brands. Now, if you think about it, think about newspapers. So we have a, a story on Media Post um, today that's basically tracking um, ad spending over the past year and in the last month in particular. And if you look at it, this kind of like a flip-flop. Digital media is up about 15 or 17%. And print media is down about 15 or 17 percent. What's funny is they're both publishing models, right? So what's happened there is analog print media has been displaced by digital um, distributed media. And in some cases, it might be the same publishers, you know, some newspaper companies, but more likely it's new native publishers who didn't even exist before, uh, like BuzzFeed or Business Insider or whatever, that are actually growing that market share. So what's happening there is a kind of a background extinction is going on where all these major newspapers are dying off, not all of them, but a lot of them, but new species of publishers are being born in the same process. So that's what we're going through right now. I wonder if we're also not going through some kind of crazy sixth extinction from media and marketing where all of this stuff is just going to make it impossible for anybody to break through, that there's just so much choice and option in the world that nothing resonates anymore. Uh, now, I know that's a pretty dystopian view of it, but um, I think there's a real opportunity there for um, someone to organize and get out in front of this. I talked in the last episode about Havas's research about being meaningful and why that's important. Um, there is this simple concept in cognitive psychology that I, has been my guiding principle in media, but also in marketing, which is called the magical number seven plus or minus three. And it's a principle that said that human beings can only really make a choice among a pretty defined set of choices, pretty much seven or plus or minus three, maybe 12, maybe 13, maybe 15. But when you get to such an infinite array of choices, it's impossible for any human being really to make a decision. You walk down that supermarket aisle and, you know, if there were 15 or 20 cereal boxes on the aisle, you know, maybe you can make a reasonable choice. But you look in some supermarkets and you see 150 different boxes 
of shredded this and that and you know fiber this it's pretty hard to choose the good news is brands help us choose by creating awareness and differentiation and relevance for us through all of the advertising media marketing they do but they're having a harder time breaking through so now we're relying more and more on technology we use search right search engines like google despite what um the president might have said in the past 24 hours, you know, they do a pretty good job of organically ranking relevance of media options for us. We use recommendation engines like uh, Netflix and Yelp and Amazon to help us choose based on our past behaviors. So more and more, we're using technology to make decisions for us. And we haven't even entered the next inning of artificial intelligence or machine learning where these technologies will actually anticipate our needs before we know we need them. So I think there's some big issues now for brands and marketers and innovative leading organizations to wrestle with. I think they should be dabbling with and experimenting with new forms of AI and uh, voice interfaces and all that stuff. But I think they also have to really understand what it is that makes them unique, differentiated, and relevant to their consumers. Well, and I want to talk about that. Uh, we'll take a quick break here to hear from our sponsor, and then let's come back and talk about that. Okay, so Joe, the just before the sponsor break there, we, we talked about this idea of being relevant. Um, you and I, before the interview, were talking a minute about content marketing. Um, when you think about brands, maybe somebody who wants to be a growing brand, who wants to dis displace the big guys out there, and you see things like you know a Red Bull or people that almost invent their own media company within the business, do you have advice for content marketing that isn't fluff, content marketing that will actually differentiate instead of be a sure. one more me too choice? Well, absolutely. But again, it goes back to what is the integral nature of the brand. So in the case of Red Bull, they had a brand arguably that was just about a caffeinated product with some taurine in it and there was really no differentiation in it and what they did is they used content to create an attitude and a sensibility as a little irreverent or kind of in your face marketing that really resonated with their users you know they went into hardcore sports and um, you know similar in a way to what GoPro did to market themselves but that's not right for all brands right all brands have different attributes and qualities of what makes them unique and relevant to their audiences so the funny thing is sometimes prosaic content or utility content or informational content is the most important thing a brand could tell its users. If you're a farmer brand, you don't really want to do something that's uh, about cliff diving or radical sports, you know, because there's a sensitivity between you and your consumer. What you want to do is give them the confidence and the assurance that your drug or your product is going to help them stay healthy and have a high quality of life. So maybe it's information about their disease state. Maybe it's in a boring format like a newsletter or an RSS feed or an app that helps them control their diabetes or their weight loss or you know their sleep habits. So it's going to be different and take on different forms for every brand and consumer. But the important quality, I don't want to be redundant and sound like I keep repeating myself, is to understand what it is that makes you meaningful and relevant to your consumer, your audience, whether it's a business audience or a consumer audience, and, and lean into that and stick with that and make your content grow out of that. You know, the sad truth is there is an infinite amount of consumer of, of content in the world. Um, let me just give one anecdote. I was listening a few years back to um, a securities firm talk, was interviewing a major head of an ad agency, this, this guy, Nigel Morris, who 
were in Aegis Media in Europe and, and around the world. And the securities analyst asked Nigel why the advertising marketing industry was so messed up and confused and disrupted. And Nigel made this little, you know, quippy statement where he said, we've moved from an era of information scarcity to one of ubiquity. And a light bulb went off in my head. It's so obvious, but of course, in a world where there's only a finite number of choices, it's easy for brands to be relevant, stand out, and connect with their consumers. In a world of infinite choice, it's really, really hard. You have to think better and work harder and figure out ingenious ways to do it. But content marketing is a brilliant way of doing it because you do have a built-in distribution infrastructure. You have YouTube or podcasts or email marketing or there's a million ways to distribute content today. The trick is having the right content that people want to have. And that's easier said than done. I think the way to do it is as an extension of what your product or service is. Sometimes in the case of a Red Bull or maybe a Coca-Cola or, or some other lifestyle brand, it is about creating an attitude and a sensibility and maybe being entertaining around it. But for most brands, it's probably thinking about what is the intrinsic value of that product or service that makes this user want to use it in the first place. And, you know, we'd have to go through every conceivable use case to break that down. But I think it runs the spectrum from being boring utility, but important information to being a very exciting, irreverent brand. And, um, you know, that, that would be the advice I would give to brands, which is just don't do content marketing for the sake of doing it. Make sure that that content is as meaningful as your brand. Well, I, I want to talk about this for one minute. You know, I, we've probably got time for one more question here in the episode. Um, you guys do research, um, trying to bring information to your clients that they may not know because the research wasn't done until you did it. Um, any, any elements of like, when you think about your latest research, that's been most helpful to your audience or that's been of most interest to your audience, can you bring up something that, that you guys have researched that really resonated with your sure. audience? Absolutely. Well, we're publishers and we're pretty much journalists, but a lot of what we publish and write about is research because in a business marketplace, there are companies that do research either internally or externally that help advise those companies on how to do their business. In advertising media marketing, there's a lot of research. There's research about who the audiences are, uh, where they spend their time, what media they consume, what types of content resonate with them, what creative messages work, what don't, you know, brand equity, all that stuff. So the one, what I like to say is in our industry, everybody in our industry has the same subcomponent, right? Whether you're buying media or selling media, whether you're creating an ad message or um, creating a marketing product, you're all using research in some form. It might be soft research like a focus group study or consumer interviews. It might be statistical research like surveys or a Nielsen rating. So our job is to write about a lot of that research each day and organize in a way that's meaningful and relevant to our readers. And if we do that well, they'll keep reading us. But occasionally there are gaps, right? There are places where we don't see research to answer these questions. So we'll try and fill those gaps. So we've done a lot more of that recently, and we've added some new publishing products. One is one I'm editing myself called the Research Intelligencer. And one of the things I did, I'm just a journalist, I'm not a researcher, but I, I work with research companies that are our partners. So there's one that tracks trade perceptions, and it's called Advertiser Perceptions. So we do a regular omnibus asking people in advertising agencies questions about what they're doing and best practices, et cetera. 
We also have teamed up with some consumer researchers, Polefish in particular, where we drop consumer surveys when we have questions to ask or answer. One of the things I like doing is identifying where there's a disconnect between the way the industry thinks and the way their consumers think. So some of my favorite studies are ones where we ask um, advertisers and agencies, what are the most important media for you to reach the consumer? And then we ask consumers, what are the most important media for brands to reach you through? And inevitably, you'll see disconnects and uh, mismatches. And I think that's fascinating and interesting. Um, but the area I'm most engaged with right now has a lot to do with kind of a new model that's emerging in advertising and media, which is this kind of direct-to-consumer model, right, where the consumer is actually the medium themselves. So the concept of direct marketing has been around as long as there's been marketing, right, you know, and usually it was things like, you know, direct mail or um, direct response television or on the Internet, you know, e-commerce models where basically you showed a product or service to a consumer and they either clicked or called or whatever gave you that credit card and bought it. But there's this new thing that's emerging and we actually don't even know what to call it yet and the industry doesn't either. They have a lot of words for it. So it's a very exciting new area. But in one form or another, it means actually turning the consumer into the medium themselves, giving the consumer a reason why they should not even engage with the brand, but engage with the message the brand is trying to distribute, the content, the creative, the ad. And um, that's very exciting. So about three months ago, probably the most innovative man in Madison Avenue is uh, the head of strategy and innovation for the ad agency Publicis, Rashad Tabakawala. And he's been one of my heroes for the past 20 odd years that I've been covering digital. And Rashad um, gave an interview and he was at an industry conference and he was talking about, uh, you know, again, why is the industry so messed up? And his answer was a little different than Nigel Morris's. His answer was because we don't we don't give the consumer enough value, right? We don't respect the time that we take for them, and we literally don't pay them enough. And it was an interesting statement because um, most people don't think brands and advertisers and agencies are paying consumers, but they are. If you sponsor um, a TV show or an internet site or a piece of content or in any medium you're in effect paying the consumer to look at the ad. It's an unspoken value exchange. This sponsor underwrote the access you have to this free ad-supported content, right? It was a form of payment. Well, that model's kind of broken down over the last um, you know, decade due to the explosion of digital content, the creation of ad blockers and other technologies. So now the industry is creating an even more explicit model for compensating the consumer to engage directly with the ads. And there are literally are businesses now that will pay consumers to look at ads directly. And it's an interesting situation because for years, marketers and brands have resisted this concept of an incentivized consumer where you literally expose, pay the consumer to be exposed to your message. But if you think about it, brands have been doing that forever. It's just in different forms. So we're conducting a lot of research on that now. And one of the things we've done is we've figured out right now on average, um, the value of an ad impression to an individual consumer is about a dollar. And what does that mean? <laughs> um, and now we're trying to figure out in a market-based marketplace, if brands were bidding for your attention in real time, what could it be? So uh, this sounds a little blurry, but if you think about it, it's really a function of what is the value of that consumer at a specific point in time to that brand? 
Right now, Madison Avenue spends billions of dollars each year buying consumer attention through these things called programmatic exchanges, right? And what they're doing is they're using um, digital platforms like Google and Facebook to buy your identity and serve you an ad impression in real time based on knowing who you are, what your emotional sentiment is, whatever your behavioral data was that led up to that. And that is an art and the science that's been crafted over the past 20 odd years of digital marketing. And, um, but what's happened that's interesting is ad agencies are now like trading desks. They literally are buying and selling human attention in real time. None of that is paying the consumer directly, but there are new models emerging right now that are trying to do exactly that to see what would the yield be of paying a consumer for a brand engagement in real time. But let's flip to the other side and talk about what is the value of that consumer's attention in real time. And it's as diverse and as broad a spectrum as the consumer marketplace might be. So it goes from being a low value, what would be called a CPM in the industry or cost per thousand, to a very high value consumer engagement. So the best use case I could give you is for a pharmaceutical brand. If a pharmaceutical brand wants to engage a consumer to participate in a clinical trial study to get FDA approval for a new drug, on average, they pay that consumer $4,000 in cash. The reason they pay the consumer that money uh, isn't just because the, the consumer, um, it's a form of consideration for participating in the study because there might be side effects and you know, negative aspects to being involved in that clinical, clinical trial study. But the number one reason the consumer participates in that study isn't the $4,000 in cash, although it's not a small amount. It's because that drug might save their lives or help other people. So it's a combination of goodwill and cash value. But the point there is sometimes brands spend a lot of money to engage a consumer to participate in the brand. Uh, research is probably the best example where they pay a lot of money for the consumer. But we're entering a new marketplace now where um, brands are thinking about what is the value of winning that consumer and should we somehow be compensating the consumer directly. So a more explicit form of this model that's starting to emerge is not that different than the original ad-supported media model, which is, and everybody's seen it, but if you, um, you cannot access this piece of content unless you look at the ad first, or if you're on a gaming platform, you cannot go to that next level unless you look at the sponsor's ad first. So in effect, the reward for you to get access to that thing is that you pro prove that you actually experience the advertiser's content. So these are all new areas. That's something we're geeking out on now and doing a lot of research around. I will say we're in a period of constant change and innovation. And uh, look, I'd welcome suggestions uh, if it's appropriate. It's joe at mediapost.com. If you have any ideas for things we should be researching or asking consumers or the industry. We love the ideas and the suggestions. I mean, that's what I'm in business to do is to get new information that helps people do business better. I love it. Well, I'm going to be going to uh, mediapost.com to be looking for this, <laughs> for these research pieces more uh, and appreciate all the time you've taken with us here today. Well, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. And I'd uh, love to come back sometime and uh, look forward to watching your future podcasts as well. That's great. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. 
anyways, he uh, he started a new company called BlipBillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.